Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hey, welcome back to Engage 360 at Denver Seminary. I'm Don Payne. We're glad you're with us. And this week we have what may be among the most immediately helpful and practical conversations we have had thus far in the Engage 360 podcast. So if you are a teacher, or if you know a teacher, or if you know a student, you're going to want to listen to this. Because our guest this week is Aaron Johnson, who's our Associate Dean of Educational Technology here at Denver Seminary. Aaron has just recently released a new book called Online Teaching with Zoom. Now, this uh, topic and the whole Zoom conversation will automatically make a lot of people tired because we uh, are pretty widely experiencing a lot of Zoom fatigue. That's like a thing now. But Aaron has learned how to redeem this thing in a really uh, helpful and unusual way. So his recent book, Online Teaching with Zoom, fairly recently was number one on Amazon in the educational category. I just checked it. It's gone down a little bit today, but not much. It is. It was number one. Uh, it's been rave-reviewed as far away as Australia. One of my uh, uh, theological colleagues, Dr. Michael Bird in Australia, got it and raved about it on Twitter. So we're going to be talking about that book, but talking about online teaching with Zoom. So if you're a teacher or if you're not a teacher but you know a teacher, here's what you need to do. You need to tell everyone you know who is a teacher or learner online about this. Use your Twitter, use your Instagram, your Facebook, even email them, or maybe, here's a thought, just tell them about it. Tell them about the podcast, get them to listen, and tell them about the book. Now, this is not merely for those in seminaries. Aaron has been a high school teacher, and his book has already been very helpful to other high school teachers. So, Aaron Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Don. Thanks. We are so glad you're here and thankful for your time. So, Uh, Give us an overall sense of some of the key topics and the needs that you address that are related to virtual teaching. I I guess whether it's Zoom or any other platform, uh, what are some of those key topics and needs that you try to get after in this book? Yeah, there's really two big ideas. The first one is that Zoom is a tool, and like any tool, it takes deliberate practice, and practice takes time. And we have this kind of idea with most of our learning technologies, almost any technology is that we expect it to be intuitive. And Zoom is great. I think it's probably the best video conferencing tool out there. And there's some other good ones, but it's, and none of them are intuitive. And that really gets in the way of our learning. If we expect something to be intuitive, we kind of set ourselves up for disappointment because any any tool, I remember my dad telling me this, he's like, um, uh, here, here's a broom, a push broom. Let me teach you how to use it. Most people don't know how to use it in our wood shop because they would push it along and create a bunch of dust, and that dust would settle on our products, and we'd have to resand and repaint those products. Huh. So I had to, a learning curve, actually. To use learning, a push broom. In learning how to use a push broom. Man, I never would have thought that. <laughs> how do you, learning to, how to use a push broom. And I think uh, folks in the past, and, and uh, let's see, what's his name? It's uh, Cal Newport from Georgetown University. He's a computer scientist. And he said, in the past, we had a more intimate connection with our tools because they were in our hands. Yeah. Like, uh, we'd use uh, shovels and, you know, hose and rakes and all these things. And many of us still do in gardening. And um, 
we, we realize that there's that learning curve because we're more, more attached to it. But the things that we use now are a little more distant and digital, and uh, they, they, they still take, actually, they may take more time because they're more complicated and sophisticated. What are some of the misconceptions that you have had to combat when it comes to online teaching in general, and oh, yeah. maybe maybe Zoom in particular, but just online teaching in general, that's your wheelhouse. Yeah. What, what are the misconceptions that you, you always have to work against? Probably the biggest one is that it's impersonal. Okay. And that it's, you know, one of my colleagues doesn't like the, the, the words distance education because of the word distance. It assumes more than just physical space, but maybe interpersonal space. But uh, I got thrown into online teaching as a way to keep connected with students after I moved to Colorado, the students I had, high school students in, in Ohio. And what I learned really quickly is a lot of the introverts came out of the woodwork because everybody's talking. And I was interacting with not just about 10% of my class during class period, but 100%. And that was, um, it was really encouraging, really enlightening. Uh, one of our professors here, uh, Professor Emeritus, uh, Dr. Bruce Dimrist, he and I've worked together on several spiritual formation courses, and one of his comments has been that he, he thinks because it's a little more deliberate and that everyone's really communicating with one another, that it may be more conducive to spiritual formation doing it online. Yeah, that's really counterintuitive mm-hmm. to what would be, uh, what, what people would instantly think about the effect of online yeah. platforms with something like spiritual formation, wouldn't it? Yeah. Very counterintuitive. So in a sense, maybe is it fair to say that it's not a choice between personal and impersonal, but it's a choice between different types of personal. Or it really is. It's kind it's of a reconfiguration of the interpersonal. Is yeah, that it's like, fair? It's like relearning. Let's say you're a missionary going into a new culture. You're learning both that culture and you're learning the language. I remember spending just a – I spent a summer in England, and they speak English. But they don't speak my English. Of a different sort. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I had to, it, it, it became, I remember one day just trying to buy a sandwich and it was, it was so frustrating. And then the, and then it was terrible. The, the food was terrible and I just threw it in the trash and I thought, I just, I just, I can't imagine being a missionary. And I think that's a lot like learning some of these digital tools like Zoom is it, it, it's so cognitively demanding. You're managing different windows and learning new features and all that, but after you give it time and you learn the language of it, then you're able to be proficient. And then you hit this place where you're not really thinking about it anymore. But it, it takes time. Yeah. Nothing's natural at first, right? Yeah. Uh, what are, uh, this may be a different version of the same question, but what have you found to be some of the biggest hurdles people have to overcome in teaching and in learning, for that matter, with Zoom? You know, I was just helping, um, helping out a few of our faculty who are teaching right now in our classrooms. And so they're teaching with an audience who's there in the classroom and one that's also on Zoom. And so there's just, just an increased cognitive load because you're managing software, you're managing your presentation, you're, managing, you're thinking about what you're going to be saying next, and um, you've got two different audiences who have two different sets of needs. And so in that cognitive load place that's so high, we can, we can typically, we tend to freeze and we tend to forget. And so it, it helps to really take it slow. And I found it, it helps to just be able to say to our classes, our students, the, the folks who are on the other end, hey, I'm, I'm figuring this out and I'm putting in the time, but it, this is not easy and I'll get better. And, and they tend to be, students really tend to be very gracious hmm. and helpful. Another thing is just uh, there's a lot of 
lot of things with video in particular, I studied video production in, in my undergrad, there's unintended communication that can happen. So if our lighting is really dark, we can communicate that we're disinterested or distant or that we're angry. Um, so learning how to do our lighting, which is not super technical, but it's, it's pretty important. I would say most, if, my, if I'm in a Zoom meeting, I'd say a majority of people have bad lighting and it could be fixed in probably 30 seconds. With a, with a few easy fixes, like just moving a light source so it's not behind you, having a window in front of you, mm -hmm. maybe closing the blinds to diffuse the light so it's not so harsh. And the other thing is uh, camera angles. So if you're sitting way below the camera, it communicates different power differentials. If I'm sitting way above the camera looking down on my students, it's, it's communicating that I'm kind of looming over or domineering. And I don't mean to communicate that, but the camera is going to, to say those things. Yeah, interesting. You know, when whatever end of Zoom we're on, I always find it interesting when people are using Zoom with two different screens and their camera is in one screen, but yes. they're watching the other screen. So I'm actually interacting with the side of their face. Right. Which is quite odd. It, it is. And what it communicates is that I, I'm not interested in you. And I don't or mean I'm not that. really talking to you. I'm right. kind of talking to the side of your head. Uh-huh. Right. And if you're in a classroom where you're teaching in a physical classroom and then you have students on Zoom, it's really easy to forget that they exist. And so it's really important to turn to them and look directly at them and speak to those students by name. You know, I, this may be more from a learner's perspective, but it does apply both to teachers and learners. Uh, just this morning, I was conducting a training session by Zoom for an external organization, not the seminary. And so I didn't have a lot of control over what the participants yeah. did. And I don't know if they were introverts or what, but almost all of the participants kept their cameras off while I was trying to talk to them. And I was amazed how difficult that was. Right. I'm just talking to black boxes. <laughs> right. It's kind of, I, I tell students, when you turn your camera off, it's kind of like coming to class and putting a piece of cardboard in front of your face. So yeah, I that's a great image. Person. So I really want to see you. And there are, I think, legitimate accommodations where you may have, say, a, a student who's in a housing situation that they're embarrassed by. Or, may, or, or may maybe have. it's just a bad hair day, you know? May, maybe it is. <laughs> and that's where things like virtual backgrounds um, can help. Or, but, yeah. So having that conversation with students, like if, you're, if there's a reason why you may not want to turn your camera on, let's talk about it kind of offline together because there might be something. You know, they're not all in that same shared space anymore. They're all in each other's living rooms and bedrooms and offices and there, there can be quite a lot of variables. Yeah, yeah. Let's follow that line of thought for a moment. How would, what would you say to online Zoom-based teachers to help them help students engage Zoom well? I'd say, you know, getting the, really requiring students to get in a space where they're not going to be interrupted. And that usually means a door that you can close. It's that, that simple. Um, and that may not be available to all students, but I'd say to most students. And then second would be to talk about talk with them about the expectation of self-awareness. You know, what you wear and what, how you, how you uh, present yourself really matters. We're in a professional setting. We're in a, we're in a setting, a scholastic setting, academic setting. And so I'd like you to be able to, to, to sit in a chair instead of laying on your couch or on your bed. That's going to help you to focus and bring, bring your best to the class. Probably the biggest thing is to keep them active. And mm. that is where you're not, as a teacher, doing all the communication, but you're really giving them the mic, putting them in small groups, active learning. And that's the second big idea in the book, and that is that 
Zoom as a technology has a tendency, it was built for interaction. It was built for conferencing. It was built for conversations. So if the teacher's doing all of the communication, you're actually working against what it was designed to do. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense of what you and your staff have trained us on the faculty to do for several years now when we record online classes. And this was, uh, I confess, this was a bit odd to me the first time I did it. But what you ask us to do is to cut our lectures up into 20 to 25-minute segments. Right. Which, uh, for people who professionally love to talk, uh, is... (laughs) It's a challenge. It's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, having to reorganize the lectures and record them only in 20, 25-minute segments. But I've received enough feedback from students over several years' time in those online courses that that was really helpful, having yeah. these digestible chunks of thought and then having something to do with them and not having to listen to any of us drone on for you know more <laughs> than 20, 25 minutes at a time. Yeah, and Zoom, I think, can help us with that become better communicators if we're if we're speaking for 10 or 15 minutes putting them into an active learning setting for 10 or 15 minutes and just creating this rhythm of that we become we become more intentional mm-hmm. with, with our words well and it can discipline us to get to the point yeah which is not as easy as it may sound right yeah, right yeah. What, what is it about zoom that you find people have the most difficulty with are there any patterns one theme has been that you need to slow it down. That even in the pacing of your voice, there's something about a microphone that you're speaking through this piece of equipment that the faster you speak, the more difficult it is for people to hear. And that's always true, but it seems to be even more true in a digital space because literally your voice is being broken up into bits and bytes, being carried a thousand miles away and being patched back together. And so you're, you may not notice that in the moment, but your brain is doing some of that stitching. It's extra work. Huh. And so when we talk about Zoom fatigue, some of that is some of that's just our body and our brain being part of our body is having, is having to do more work. So, for instance, there's latency, which is that little gap in communication. And you can see that if you're on Zoom, you just look at yourself in the camera, blink your eyes, and there'll be like a gap there, and you'll see yourself right. blink your own eyes, right? Right. And so your brain is actually trying to smooth that out, and it does a great job of it, but that takes, you know, say 5% more energy. So the students are going to be a little more tired. So slowing it down and I think even just narrating what you're doing, what the students can't see, like, you know, I'm right now I'm bringing up a slide presentation for our, this next part of our class, and while I'm doing that, I'd like you to think about this question and so what you're doing is you're creating these transitional spaces. You're helping students stay oriented to what's going on instead of kind of the magic always happening behind the scenes or mm. having all these unknown spaces mm-hmm. because that's, students have a really hard time with that. Okay. So that's where, at least in part, Zoom fatigue is coming from, that yeah. extra work the brain is doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that you're sedentary, right? You are in a meeting you're usually able to, I think, shift more in some settings. You can get up and walk around. You can still do that with Zoom, but we tend to, because we're kind of habituated to a television set, just sitting there. Uh, so it's really important to get up, move around, take breaks, probably. You know, you really need to feel out where your learners are. Is it every 20 minutes? Is it every 45 minutes? Is it every hour and a half? It really depends on the age, the developmental level, and what you're doing. Okay, yeah. okay. 
Do you have any other ways of kind of mitigating or compensating for uh, that Zoom fatigue or maybe even for other other difficulties that people tend to encounter when they're teaching by Zoom? Any other suggestions? Yes, so some of it is Zoom and some of it is just our bodies, that our bodies are, are made to move as much as we can. So not just taking breaks, but getting up and going for a walk. So it's great to tell your students, hey, I got this one question for you. I want you to take five to seven minutes. And I want you, if you can, get out of your house. If you need to pace your room, that's okay. But get your legs moving if, if you can and uh, get a change of scenery. It's also really good. Uh, for us to be able to focus on far distances. If we've been looking at a screen that's anywhere from 10 to 30 inches from our eyes, our eyes are just doing the same thing, and they need to look into the distance, even if it's just out the window every once in a while. So in the midst of a meeting, maybe just taking a pause and say, hey, I'd like, if you can, look across the room or look out the window. Give your eyes a break for a minute and think about this. I find that just taking a pause and asking students to ponder I love the word ponder or linger on this thought for a moment is really good for mitigating Zoom fatigue, but also is really great for learning in general to create this uh, kind of a culture of wonder in the classroom. Hmm. That's interesting because somebody many years ago gave me a very similar piece of advice when I started uh, doctoral studies, knowing that that was going to be a very reading intensive. I was going to be spending hundreds of hours reading. And this friend told me, you know, your eyes were not made to focus that long, that intensely on things that close to you. So every hour or so or with periodic at periodic intervals, you need to simply look up, look off into the distance and let your eyes relax a bit, Mm -hmm. which I found really beneficial. I think that's the same phenomenon you're describing. It it is. And and akin to that is is having students do tactile things, and in particular taking, taking notes, and, and maybe helping redefine notes for students as, hey, this, this time during class, I want you to have a sheet of paper out and a pencil or a pen, and I'd like you just to write down questions. Like, you're not trying to get everything I'm saying to be, you know, put it back on an exam or something. It's just, I want you to wonder with me about, about things. So try to, try to write down five questions over the course of this next hour and a half. Aaron, you're also the author of a, a previous book called Excellent Online Teaching, Effective Strategies yeah. for Successful for Successful Semesters Online. I may have gotten the title messed up a little bit. It's close enough. Okay. <laughs> Excellent Online Teaching. You've been at this for some time. What are some of the big shifts in your own thinking or big learning moments for you when it comes to online teaching and learning? Probably the biggest one, this is kind of funny, is really taking time to think through what you grade in the online space, particularly asynchronous online learning, so not Zoom, where students are a little more at their own pace, at least during the course of a week. They've got assignments and due dates, but they're involved in these online discussions that might use video, they might not, might be text discussions, annotation, software, stuff like that. We tend to proliferate graded items in those types of courses. How so? What do you mean? Well, there's all these opportunities for different links and uh, assignments and small things that you, maybe you can even do in five minutes. Like, so for instance, when I looked over one of our online courses, I think it had 326 unique different things inside of it. Yikes. And, and we have a tendency as human beings, I don't understand this totally, 
I'm sure some psychologists have studied this, to want to assess everything. Okay. And not everything is really valuable uh, to assess. Some huh. things just really need to be an activity. I think of it as, you know, you're giving students this really potent content like a blueberry. And a blueberry, I guess, if you took the fiber out of a blueberry, it'd be really difficult to digest because it has so many powerful sugars in it. But that fiber allows it to metabolize in the body. Hmm. So I think of like, you know, delivering just incredibly thick, weighty content to a student. And then they have this time to spend discussing it or working through it to metabolize it. And then assessment is this third thing where we say, okay, what are those few things that are most important that I need to assess as a, as a teacher? That's interesting because the, the assumption embedded in what you just said is that learning can still be taking place even if I'm not assessing it. Yeah. And a lot of it times- It can still be happening. I can do what are called informal checks, which are participating in the discussion, asking further questions, observing what's going on in the discussion, and I'm seeing the learning. I'm seeing the evidence of learning, but it doesn't mean I need to test it. I just need to take it in and get a sense of where my class is so I can be an effective teacher. So where I've really changed, say, in practice, when I first started teaching online courses, I would grade all of my discussions. But then I thought, would I ever stand behind my students in a small group in person with a clipboard and grade their discussions? I'd never do that. In fact, if I did that, that would put pressure on them to perform, and they'd write essays. And I think that's what we see a lot of in graded discussions in, in online courses. Hmm. Students feel pressured to write essays, so they don't really talk because with each they, other. Because they feel like they're being assessed all the time. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it doesn't just wear the students out. It really wears the teachers out. So, for instance, let's say I had uh, 10 discussions in a course with 20 students in it, and I had two posts in that. I think it's like 400 different things that I might actually grade with a rubric that I don't really need to. Yeah, who can do that? People do. And actually, some institutions require that. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Please don't ask me to do that. I don't. I won't. <laughs> I know you won't. <laughs> hey, we got started uh, today uh, with a question about what you cover in your book. And there are a number of books, and I'm sure many of them are helpful, out there about online teaching. Yeah. I've seen quite a number of them on Amazon. Uh, what sets yours apart? What are you trying to do that will, mm. will push this conversation forward helpfully in this book? I think I try to be to the point. Okay. I, I had an author friend, and she looked at the first draft of it. She said, you need to cut about half of it out. And so I did. I think I took 42%. That always hurts an author. That, it, that's painful to it's, hear. It's rough, but <laughs> it, it, was so, it was so needed. Uh, my first book, I think the strength of it was that it was very succinct. And I think, I think this one is, is too. So very practical. I think the other piece is um, it gives a lot of ideas that you can put into play you know, right after, as you're reading it, I had a surgeon contact me, a consultant who teaches, I think, teachers how to teach surgery online. Wow. <laughs> and she said, I, I took 12 pages of notes from this thing because she was just finding it very applicable to what they were doing. And, and that was really encouraging to me because that's a very skills-based thing. Yeah, sure. To do, it better be, right? Yeah, they, be, yeah, <laughs> they better, better be very skilled. Yeah. So the book really has four parts. The, the first part, is short, about 40 pages, where I go through the, the technical how-tos, the real basics of getting your audio set up, getting your kind of visual screen set up, and the room where you're going to teach. And then we move into, which I think is maybe the most important part of the whole book, and is getting a, 
real student perspective, how do students experience the Zoom or video conference classroom? And then how do you, how do you play to that? How do you not, not work against that, but work with that? And with that, I deal with classroom management. So what are protocols like, hey, you can't come to class driving a motor vehicle? <laughs> Those kinds of things. Yeah. Or be, be in a space where you can close that door or have earbuds or a headset to help localize your, your sound. Those kinds of things. And the third part is taking more of probably a lecture-driven classroom. How do you add to it? How do you augment that with act, like segments of active learning? And then the fourth part is more of a shift to collaborative learning uh, and tasks where you're, you've got students working in groups. And so we take that breakout rooms tool in Zoom and use it for learning. But I think, I think what makes the book probably unique as a, a Zoom book is that it's, it's not focused on doing meetings or really the, the ins and outs of the technology as much as how do you do this unique thing of teaching with Zoom? Okay. I know that a lot of a lot of teachers at various levels are secretly, if not uh, publicly, hoping that things are quickly going to come back to the way they were and will be less reliant on this technology. Maybe in our more realistic moments, we know that whatever the new normals are, we're probably not going to return to the way things were educationally in terms of educational delivery systems or modalities. Where do you see us headed in the future? Do a little bit of maybe forecasting. Where do you see us headed in light of how the pandemic has shifted our teaching and learning modalities? I ask this because um, we're going to have to be making some rather long-term, maybe even permanent adaptations as teachers. What do do you think those are going to be? What's it going to look like going forward? We've got to keep a pulse on our students and not the tech. The tech tends to eclipse the, the bigger question, you know, because the tech says, here's what is possible. And the students tell us, here's what we need. Hmm. So right now our students are changing. I'm having students come up to me and say, I never took an online course before. I didn't want to. And it, it turned out to be an amazing experience. It works better with my life. And I have other students who are saying, yeah, it's, it's not really – for me. And so what we're having is really we're starting to see several different audiences, if you will, emerge. And you need different types of distance learning or online learning for them. So for instance, for us at least, we have a lot of people who are uh, adult learners. They're working full time and they might be able to come to one class in a semester that meets from six to nine o'clock on a Thursday night, but most of them can't. Mm -hmm. They need something asynchronous. It's more on their time frame. But then we also have a group of students who moved a thousand miles from the Midwest to come to Colorado to study, and they really want to be in the classroom. In the COVID situation, though, what if their spouse gets ill, and that means they're also quarantined, and then let's say they get ill after, you know, 20 days of quarantine. Now they're out of class for four class sessions, and they've paid for that class, right? So mm-hmm. how can we accommodate them, which is what we're doing, with a Zoom technology in the classroom if they hit that kind of situation? Or their, or their kid's school closes and they need to be home and they can't come to class anymore. So there's really getting to know who our students are. And then we really have to honor 
our limitations, our, the limitations of the human body, the limitations of uh, people, particularly teachers. And I see a lot right now of institutions really requiring very complex modes of delivery and um, the technology is making so many things possible, but no one really knowing where to draw the lines. So yeah. For instance, uh, hearing parents talk about getting literally scores of notifications in 24 hours from the learning management systems, where these online courses live mm -hmm. for their K-12 students. And you've got, let's say, four kids you know, that you get over 100 notifications within just, you know, 48 hours. Yeah, how do you keep up with that? Yeah, you, you can't. We're not built for it. And so the key is, is always asking the question, I think, with online learning, how can we make it more straightforward? How can we make it more simple? Because the tendency of these technologies is to lead us down a road of complexity. Mm. And not all things are, doesn't Paul say that, like, you know, not, I can, all things are available for me to do, but they're not all beneficial. That's just a great rule of, of life to say, hey, that's all possible, but what do our students need? What do our faculty need? Let's keep it as basic as possible, and then let's build on top of that rather than trying to uh, meet everybody's needs and use all the bells and whistles yeah. from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that's great. This is really helpful. Aaron, thanks. Yeah, We've been talking to, to Aaron Johnson, who's our Associate Dean of Educational Technology here at Denver Seminary. We are really proud of him because he has become and has led our whole Educational Technologies Department to be, I think, something of a front runner, a vanguard among uh, seminaries particularly, and has published this work that's going to be widely applicable uh, far beyond the, the boundaries of the seminary world. So let me encourage you again to get a copy of it. It's called Online Teaching with Zoom by Aaron Johnson. And on that note, I want to thank our production team, who uh, Krista Ebert, who is, again, faithfully on the soundboard and does our editing and works heavily and intensely with our online program. And we want to give a shout out to her as well as everybody else who make this happen. Uh, we're going to have more engaging conversations coming. And so we hope you will check in with us again next week. This has been Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. I'm Don Payne. Thanks for listening.